Thank you, Nathan. Appreciate that. Um, as Nathan did say, my name is Reed Kappel, and um, I, I do serve at the Leewood campus. I've been there for almost, almost seven years now, which is kind of crazy to think about. And uh, just a little bit about me so that we're not total strangers. Um, I, I'm married to my wife, Megan, uh, and we have three little girls. I think we have a picture of our family up there. And uh, yeah, three girls uh, that Pastor Tom actually refers to as our sorority. Uh, and we've called it Kappel Kappel Gamma. <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, uh, Lula is our oldest, and then Jane, our, our middle daughter, uh, is four, and she's probably one of the funniest people I know. She's sitting right there. Hi, Jane. I'm uh, just embarrassed her. Uh, and then our youngest daughter, Pearl, uh, is uh, almost, she'll be two in April. And so, yeah, father of three girls, a lot of estrogen in my house, and that's fine. I love it. I love it. It's a lot of fun, and I uh, wouldn't have it any other way. Um, I also uh, grew up actually in Olathe. I went to Olathe North. Go Eagles. Ah! I don't know if they do that, but, uh, but that's, that's where I went to high school. I graduated in 2000, and um, I actually, I, I thought I'd share a picture of my senior yearbook picture. So before you think I'm like cool, like, oh, this guy's coming to speak here. No, this is what I looked like in high school, and I chose to look like this. I chose it. And um, An interesting fact about me is that I was actually voted best hair in my senior class of of about 450 people, and so it was glorious. Um, It actually grew out a little longer. I had it like in ponytail length, like Thor hair, and uh, I was mistaken for a girl 13 times. Uh, The last time was by my own mother, and that's when I decided to cut my hair. So um, it hasn't grown back since, but that's a little bit of who I was. Um, I, I, I did grow up in this area. In fact, when I was in middle school, I have memories of riding my bike around here where there was nothing out here except a construction site uh, where this church was built. And I remember my brother and I riding around here and actually like playing in the construction site like after hours. We weren't like, you know, moving tractors and things like that. So I kind of had a hand in building this church, you could say. I mean, in some small ways. Um, if you do find a Ninja Turtle somewhere in the ground on the premises, that's mine. I've been missing it. Please bring it to me. I would appreciate that. But um, yeah, that's a little bit of who I am. Um, as I said, married to my wife, Megan. Uh, she's my best friend, a lover. And uh, if, if, you've ever, if you've ever been in love, if you've ever known anybody who's been in love, you know that, that love is, is a strange thing. It's, it's odd. Uh, it makes us do, say, think, feel, buy strange things. And uh, just for an example, I mean, because I love my wife, I love my girls, I've bought more glitter in my life than I care to admit, uh, just because that's, those are things that my girls love, you know. Um, because of love, I, I have on more than one occasion been in someone's home and said, oh, are those curtains uh, made from Amy Butler fabric? And I just, I, I just, I know what that is. Some of you ladies get that, you know, but I just, I speak that language. Um, I know what things like Twall and Mod Podge are, not because I like books, you know, scrapbooking, it's just... I'm in love with a woman who loves these things, you know, and by association, for better or for worse, it's a part of my life, and I love it. I do love it, and um, I, I, won't, I won't brag about my exhaustive knowledge of Disney princesses, but uh, let's just say most nine-year-old girls would be very impressed with what I know, and so, and most adult men would be very terrified uh, and embarrassed of me. Uh, but, but like I said, love makes us do strange things, say strange things, feel strange things, and similarly, when we think about faithfulness to God, uh, at face value, faithfulness seems like a, a pretty basic thing. You, you listen to what God says, you seek to understand what God says, and you do what God says. And, and while faithfulness does entail those things, and it's nothing less than that, faithfulness to God is so much more than that as well. 
And this morning, what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 4 in the passage that Pastor Nathan read to us is that faithfulness to God is actually more strange than we care to admit or even realize, that there's a strangeness to it that's backwards to the way in which we naturally think. And when, when I say strange, I mean that it's, it's kind of countercultural, it's counterintuitive to the way in which we kind of place value on things like success and recognition and wealth and prestige. And, and while those things aren't bad, what we see is something a little bit different in God's economy and his kingdom, that faithfulness to God looks a bit strange. And what we're going to see is just three things this morning, is that faithfulness to God, it requires seeing first our identity as servants, seeing our talents as gifts, and thirdly, seeing our weaknesses as strengths. Our identity as servants, our talents as gifts, and our weaknesses as strengths. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, but before we jump in, I would just like to, to, to pray for us for our time together uh, as we hear from God's word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we come to you um, in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit to, to worship you, and, and we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to, to see your truth, open our ears to hear your truth, open our hearts to, to receive and embrace and understand and delight in your truth. Uh, so, Lord, shape us and form us, and, and would you, in new and fresh ways, just reveal to us more of who Jesus is and what it means to be faithful to you through him. Uh, we pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So, 1 Corinthians 4, uh, we're going to look at these strange things about faithfulness to God. The first is seeing that our identity is to be seen as, as servants. And, and just to kind of bring us back into context, the end of chapter 3, Paul is essentially kind of rebuking the Corinthians for this kind of my dad can beat up your dad kind of argument of like, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas. And, and Paul's rebuking them because in, in their divisions, they're creating this kind of um, boastful attitude of like, I side with this guy because he's the right thinker. He's got his theology right, so I'm on the winning team. And it's created these sides, which has created division, which has created boasting, which has created pride. And Paul's writing them to say, you guys are missing the point. I, I'm not anybody. I'm nothing. Me and Apollos and Cephas, we're, we're not anybody of recognition. In fact, you need to understand that who we are at the core of our being is servants. But you have elevated us to this place of like celebrity status, and that's not who we are. And, and when you look at the beginning of chapter 4, in the first two verses, Paul makes this very clear. He's like, look, I'm, I'm a servant. In fact, anybody who would say they identify with Jesus should claim to be a servant. In fact, they are a servant. In verses 1 and 2, Paul says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, it's important to note that, that Paul is not just saying that if you're a Christian, you must serve, or if you're a Christian, you should have a servant mindset. He's saying, no, 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 at the core of your being, your identity, your, your for, the foundational posture that you have is a servant. There's not a possibility to be a follower of Jesus and not a servant, that those two things are synonymous in Paul's mind. And so if you would claim to be a follower of Christ, if you claim to be a Christian, then what you are saying is that I am identifying myself as a servant. And, and we should ask ourselves this question, is this how we are viewed by those in our lives? If you would say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, do people in your life see you as a servant? And, and just to kind of maybe uh, get into the habit of thinking about this, think about your five closest friends 
And, and, and if they were to create a list of five words that described you, would, would the word servant appear on that list? Would, would they think of you as a servant in such a way that that would be one of the words they would use to describe you? Now, maybe your, your close friends would say that, like, yeah, yeah, I mean, he's a servant, but it, that's kind of a bit unfair. I mean, we tend to serve and care for and love those that, that we love or who are easy to love. But, but remember, Paul says he's not just saying that if you're a Christian, you serve, but it is your identity. It is your primary posture and disposition. So maybe extend the list to your coworkers or your classmates, people that you wouldn't necessarily consider friends, but would your coworkers, would your classmates, would they put the word servant on that list to describe you? And then maybe take it another step further. What about your family, the people you actually live with, your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your husband, your wife, would they say, you are a servant? When I think of you, I think of servant. And it's just a good diagnostic question for us to ask ourselves. Do I live my life in such a way, do I have a faithfulness to God in such a way that those around me would say, yeah, this, this person definitely displays a posture of service towards others? And if not, if that word does not show up on those lists, we should ask the question, why? And what is something that we're missing about faithfulness to God if we are not living lives that reflect the servant nature of the God that we serve? Now, perhaps the, the servant language is confusing. We don't have servants in our culture today. And so maybe thinking about it in a different way or framing it in a different way might help. And, and one of the ways in which I, uh, I think we, we do at Christ Community, if you've been around, you've heard this phrase, living before an audience of one. And, and that concept is, is very helpful, and I think it's very much similar to what Paul is getting at when he talks about seeing our identity as servants. And this idea of the audience of one is, is articulated by Oz Guinness, and good old Dr. Oz, in his book, The Call, he says this. He says, living before the audience of one transforms all our endeavors. That is why Christ-centered heroism does not need to be noticed or publicized. The greatest deeds are done before the audience of one, and that is enough. Those who are seen and sung by the audience of one can afford to be careless about lesser audiences. Now, now when you read that at first glance, it sounds like Mr. Guinness here is being a little bit of a jerk. Like, I, I only care about God. I, I, I don't have to care about lesser audiences. And, and that's, I don't think that's the mindset he's trying to, um, to have or adopt or express. I think he's saying actually what Paul is saying is that, no, 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 when we have this posture of a servant serving our audience of one, we are freed from the burdens of living for the acceptance and approval of others. Paul is not saying, and I don't think I was going to say this either, they're not saying that other people's opinions have no meaning or no value. I don't think that's what Paul's getting at. Because when, when you read in that passage in verses 3 and 4, it says, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And so what Paul is, is getting at is that when we place ourselves under the gracious and loving authority of God as our one true judge and audience, we are freed from living for the approval and acceptance of others. It doesn't mean that their opinion is, is, has no value. 
That was kind of the mindset I remember having in high school. When, when I was in middle school, I was really depressed. I mean, I, I struggled with self-esteem, and then as I entered into high school, I started to have this kind of confidence. But it wasn't because I, I was properly viewing myself. It was, it was the result of condescending, or being kind of condescending and cynical towards other people. And by kind of putting others down, it inflated my ego. And so I kind of had the view of like, I don't care what you think of me. And, and it sounds like that's humble, like, oh, wow, how humble of him. He doesn't care about me. But actually, it was this pride of like, no, you are so insignificant that your view of me has no impact on me whatsoever. That is a toxic mindset. That is a false humility. And what Paul is trying to show us is that, no, 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 it's not that we think less of people. It's not that they're insignificant. But in comparison to God's view of us and how he sees us, the comparison to how other people view us is insignificant. It's not that other people's opinions have no meaning, but in comparison to our audience of one, they truly have no impact on us. L let me illustrate it this way. If, uh, when I was in college, I went to K-State. I lived in Manhattan, Kansas, and um, I had a car that had a peculiar problem. The problem was I could drive it for five minutes, and then after that, white smoke would come out of the hood. And so it was an interesting problem. Um, and the nice thing about Manhattan is that Everything was just five minutes away. And so it was like, this, this is perfect, you know? So like when I started dating my wife, she didn't know that my car was basically a death trap. And so, uh, but one fateful Thursday afternoon, I had to drive for seven minutes. And I come to, I'm in an intersection, the, the stoplight, and I am literally filling this intersection with smoke. And it's just, I mean, just like, it's terrible. It looks hideous. And this guy in a pickup truck pulls up next to me. I'm waiting for the light to turn green. He's like, I gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. And this guy pulls up next to me in the truck. And not exaggerating, not joking, he just goes, hey, buddy, your taillight's out. <laughs> and, I, and, and I look at him and just like, do not see, you know, just like, <coughs> anything else we're missing? You know, he's like, no, just get that fixed, you'll be good. And uh, I don't know if that's what he sounded like, but in my mind, that's what he sounded like. And so, it, now, in that moment, it's not that my taillight being burnt out is unimportant. It's, I mean, I'm glad that he pointed out, because if I, if I don't get it fixed, I could get a ticket, and that's a bad thing. He's being a good neighbor. But in comparison to this holy of holies white smoke kind of coming out of the hood of my car, I'm like, this is a bad thing. That, that my taillight being burnt out is so insignificant in comparison. It doesn't match up. Similarly... When we have such a, an infatuation and focus on God's view of us and how he looks at us, we are less concerned with how other people define us. Does that make sense? Are you tracking me? So we have to see that when we understand God's view of us is of greater importance, we are freed from living for the approval and acceptance of others. But Paul goes even one step further and says, not only do I, do I not care about what you think of me ultimately, but I don't even judge myself, he says. Not only am I freed from the burden of living for your approval, I don't have to live for my own approval because I'm so focused on God's approval of me that I don't even care what I think of myself. And that kind of freedom can only come from finding our identity as servants faithful to God. And in some ways, I mean, some of us might be at a place of maturity where we'd say, you know what, I, don't, I feel like I'm, I am kind of free from the, the, the burden of living for other people's approval. But are you free from living from your own approval? Which in some ways is almost more rigid, almost more demanding at times. And the only way we can find freedom from that is by adopting this identity as servants. Now in his little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, 
Tim Keller. I mean, this is, look, look how tiny this thing is. You can read this in like eight seconds. You'll be done by the time the sermon's over. I have bookmarks bigger than this thing. But um, I really encourage you to read it. But it's, it's essentially just a meditation on this very passage. And in it, he talks about this concept of being freed from the approval of others and the approval of ourselves. And uh, he, in referring to Paul, he says, Paul is saying that he knows about his sins, but he does not connect them to himself and his identity. He refuses to play that game. But neither does he see his accomplishments and congratulate himself. And I think this is a great balance of how we think about true humility. True humility is not downplaying our accomplishments and maximizing and showcasing our failures. But it is properly seeing both, saying, I see my failures and sins, and I see my accomplishments, and I don't attach either of them to my identity. I am not how great and successful I am, and I am not how much of a failure I am. Yes, these things are true, but they are not who I am ultimately. And it's the identity and the posture of a servant that frees us from those two extremes of falling into arrogance and pride over here in boasting in our accomplishments and falling into despair in the side of identifying our sins with ourselves. And what Paul says is, no, when you understand your posture of a servant, you're freed from both. And, and, and this actually kind of leads us to this, this second strange thing about faithfulness is that, is that when we adopt and understand our identity as servants, we also see that, that when we're faithful to God, we see that our gifts, that our talents are our gifts. They are gifts from God. And if, if you look at verses six and seven, Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, we've mentioned this before. Paul has referenced this whole kind of celebrity pastor debacle. And, and Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for saying, I follow Paul. No, I follow Paulus. He's rebuking him because what it's doing is creating sides, which is creating division, which is creating boasting, which is creating pride, where they're boasting in the leader, this leader, like this leader is the right one. He's got the right way of thinking. I am siding with him. He's on the winning side. I'm on the winning side. And we do this at times in our lives. We're like, oh, I don't listen to that sermon or that, that pastor. I listen to this pastor. You know, I, I don't subscribe to that kind of podcast. I sub subscribe to this podcast, or I voted for him, not him. And we attach ourselves, ourselves with a leader and in so doing, we kind of boast in the fact that we think we're on the winning side. And Paul says, no, that's not it. You don't understand. I, I'm a servant, and you have to see myself in that way. But in the same way, he says, don't you, you, you don't get it. Like, my life is not glamorous. My life is broken. You don't understand what this ministry of the gospel has produced in my life. And so by you saying, I'm with Paul, like, do you know what you're siding with? You're siding with a guy who's been shipwrecked, who's been in prison, who's been persecuted, who has had his reputation ruined by people in the church, outside the church. Do you realize who you're siding with? You're siding with someone who is very much broken. And Paul is saying this because he doesn't want the Corinthians to be puffed up and arrogant. He knows that that mindset can lead to destruction. He says, no, you've got to, you've got to be careful that this doesn't puff you up. That's what he says. I'm writing this so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And Paul tries to keep them from being puffed up by doing two things. The first is kind of funny. The second is a little bit more insightful. The first thing he says, he basically just tells them, you're not special. 
Which, I mean, he says, for who sees anything different in you? You're not unique. I don't care what your mom told you. You're not a snowflake, and you're not the only one. You're like, you are not special. <laughs> Paul has a way with words that he's just very uplifting, you know? I, if Paul were a pastor today, I'm convinced none of us would go to his church. I don't, I just, he just would not be that comforting. Like, welcome to the scum of the earth church. That's the name of our church here. But I just don't think he'd be that inviting, you know? But he says things very boldly and bluntly, not because he's being a jerk, but because he's trying to awaken them to this reality that, no, by you siding with one over the other, you're actually falling into this kind of arrogant mindset that is very destructive. But what we also see is that the second thing that he says to try to keep them from being puffed up is that he says, no, you, you don't realize that you are who you are and you have what you have because of God's grace towards you. It is a gift. That's why he says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, this is very backwards to us because we tend to operate and think through this perspective of, of what is earned, an earned perspective of I have what I have, I am what I am based on what I have accomplished. And, and that mindset is very natural for us. I've worked hard. I've, I've, I've worked very hard to get to this place in life, to have this kind of status, to have this wealth, to have this home, whatever it is, and we think we've earned it. And here's the thing, that, that if, if, if God is out of the picture then we have almost every right to, to boast in ourselves, to be arrogant, to celebrate and to give credit to ourselves for who we are and what we've done. But if God truly is who he says he is, and if he is the giver of every good gift, then to boast in our talents, to boast in our talents is either pathetic at best or it is very offensive to God at worst. It would, be like me, it would be like if my wife bought me a whole new wardrobe of clothes, and then I went around walking, walking about talking about how much great fashion sense I had. That's not because of me. It's because of what my wife has purchased for me. In the same way, when we walk around pointing everyone to ourselves, taking credit for what we've done, we're actually robbing God of glory, and we're failing to see that we should have this gift perspective instead of an earned perspective. Because an earned perspective kind of creates this close-handed approach where, where we are who we are, we have what we have because of what we've done. And it keeps us in this kind of posture of, or it can put us in a posture of, of being greedy and grouchy. But when we operate from this gift perspective of we are who we are and we have what we have by God's grace alone, we have more of this open-hand approach that we can be generous and grateful and that is what Paul is wanting to get into the minds of the Corinthians. Have this open-handed approach, have a gift perspective, and see and understand that you are who you are and you have what you have because of God's grace. Let me illustrate it another way. This is a, a children's book that um, my wife and I got our kids for Christmas. It's called Full Moon Rising. And it's, just, it's a little poem that actually was inspired by the same text in 1 Corinthians 4. And I wanted to read it to you. We'll have a little story time here. I was going to get a little leather chair, but Nathan said no. But um, I wanted to read this little poem for us. So it's a little story time with Pastor Reed here. So listen along to Full Moon Rising. Dear God, I heard a cosmic story and wondered if it's true. The moon was stealing glory, and this is what he'd do. He bragged each night that his great might could make the darkness flee. And like a kite, he scaled the heights and said, hey, look at me. The pompous moon would only croon the songs that praised his name. He hoped that soon the cosmic tunes would bring him greater fame. 
It's really strange, but he could change his shape throughout the year. His face would change, then rearrange, and sometimes disappear. He loved the thought that astronauts had danced across his face, and cosmonauts and monkey knots would visit him in space. He bragged that he could cause the sea to rise and swell each day. Then all could see how mightily he'd pull the waves away. He'd boast away and love to say, I am the greatest light. Until one day a piercing ray showed him a shocking sight. He saw his pride and then he cried for all that he had done. For he had lied when he denied his light came from the sun. So now each night, a new delight is what he loves the most. Reflecting light with all his might, the sun is now his boast. So God, I pray for grace each day to find the joy that's true in all my days and all my ways in making much of you. Isn't that really good? Like, that's just, it's a kid's book, you know? And that, I have goosebumps even just hearing that. And the whole picture, the whole idea is that the moon and thinking that it's shining this light, that he is the source of light. No, in fact, he is shining only because he's reflecting the light of the sun. In the same way, as we boast in our abilities and talents and skills, it is like the moon thinking that he is a source of light when in fact he's just simply reflecting the light of the sun. Now, it'd be perfect if Paul just kind of ended there, but he finds a way to get this kind of sarcastic jab in, and then he just has to make room for it. But in verse 8, it says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now, he's being sarcastic here because he's trying to say, like, look, you think that you've arrived. You think that you have matured beyond the need of, of us and, and leaders in your life. He's like, no, you, you have missed the point. That you think you have arrived, that you're boasting in your abilities and your maturity, you've missed the point because all that you are and all that you have is the result of God's grace towards you. Now, as I mentioned, the, the strange things about God's faithfulness, it means seeing our identity as servants, seeing our, our talents as gifts, but it also means embracing this very strange backwards way of looking at our weaknesses as strengths. And what we see is that what Paul is, is showing us is that, is that it's our weaknesses that actually give God an opportunity to bring about his purposes in such a way that it brings more credit and glory and attention to him and not to us. Because when, when we are boasting in ourselves, we are robbing God of glory, and in so doing, we're actually robbing ourselves of the opportunity of delighting in God, our greatest joy. And what Paul says, he, he's not celebrating this kind of masochistic, like, I love pain kind of uh, approach to life. He's saying, no, it's through our brokenness and weakness that God shows up and, and works through us. If you notice in, in, verses, uh, seven, or in verses 9 through 13, look at the ways that Paul describes himself and the apostles. He says, last of all, like men sentenced to death, a spectacle to the world, fools, weak, dis disrepute, poor, reviled, persecuted, slandered, scum of the earth, refuse of all things. The reason Paul is pointing this out is he's saying, you have to understand that if you are boasting in your strengths, it's just going to lead you on a path of pride and arrogance where you're placing yourself way too high and that will lead to a very empty and hollow life. But when you understand who you are as a result of the, of the grace of God and when you understand that it's through your brokenness that God uses you, we're kind of guarded from that puffed up mentality 
I mean, we, we don't naturally do this. This is so backwards to us. We, we typically brag about our strengths, whether it's physical strength, whether it's our beauty, whether it's our intellect or an artistic talent that we have. You don't see people bragging about how weak and pathetic they are. You don't also see people downplaying like their strengths, like, I don't know what to do with all this muscle. Like, you don't see that. We naturally brag about the things in our life. It's so natural for us, but it's so backwards to see our weaknesses as strengths, our weaknesses as opportunities for God to enter in and accomplish his purposes through us. If you think about it in this way, like if you think about a a pair of new shoes, sometimes they're painful at first, you have to kind of wear them in, they have to be broken in before they actually are comfortable and form to your foot. In the same way, it isn't until we are broken and embrace our weakness that we're kind of formed to God in some ways. It's the proud, it's the arrogant that God looks at and says, you're missing the point. That's why Jesus was so angry at the Pharisees, because in their pride they were keeping themselves at arm's length from God. We have to see that it's through our weaknesses that God accomplishes his purposes. And that through it, it's actually a means by which we grow in Christ's likeness and Christian virtue. If you read, I mean, that's why Paul says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat or, or speak kindly. Some other translations say that. And what Paul is saying here is this, is that the strange faithfulness to God means reversing this order of values. It means, it means pursuing and finding value in things that the world might see as signs of weakness. Things like humility, forgiveness, and sacrifice. Sure, those things seem cool on paper, but, but we look at those things and say that's a sign of weakness. But it also means that the strange faithfulness to God will result in us pushing away or not pursuing things that the world sees as signs of strength. Things like success and recognition and fame and wealth. These aren't bad things, but when that is what we pursue, when we're saying, no, once I have this, once I have this recognition, I'm I'm at this financial status, I have this kind of popularity, then I will have arrived. We say, no, 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 that's, you're missing the point. That actually leads to an emptiness. But when we embrace this backwards way of seeing faithfulness to God and strangeness of it, what we'll see is that it will mean that we pursue things that the world sees as signs of weakness, and we will embrace and we will, we will push away and neglect things that the world might say are signs of strength. And so if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, you're like, this, this sounds really backwards. Christians sound very odd. And I just want to say, you're right. I mean, the, the, you're, you're getting it. Because the life of faithfulness to Christ is backwards. It is strange. It is odd. And we have to understand that it will result in us looking odd, being odd, saying strange and odd things. Because the kingdom of God is very backwards to how we typically look at the world and ascribe value and worth. So we've seen that that this strange faithfulness requires seeing our identity as servants, requires seeing our, our talents as gifts, and requires seeing our weakness as strength. But we would be remiss if we failed to see also that in all of this, it requires seeing our community as vital. It requires seeing our community as vital. And what I mean by that is that Paul is trying to show us that the life of faithfulness to God through Christ was never intended to be a solo sport. It was never intended to be experienced in isolation, but it was always designed for the purpose of community. So that if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, if if you're trying to understand what the Christian faith is about, what the Christian life is about, hear me when I say that it is a life that is lived in community. 
that is a life of, of, of growing and struggling, a life of believing and doubting, rejoicing and mourning, but it is doing all of those things together. That's why Paul says in 14 and 17, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. Now, if you've grown up in the church or not, you've probably heard somewhere along the line someone say something to the effect of, you need the church. You need to go to church. And, and yes, that's true. We, we all need the church. We need the church's encouragement and teaching and correction and support and accountability. But there's also this very real sense in which the church needs you in which the church needs your giftings and your abilities for the sake of building up the church and making much of God in this world. We tend to just think of the church as something that I need and I need to get something out of, but there's a very real sense in which the church needs you. And so the, these last two questions I wanted to leave us with is this, is, is when you think about this strange life of faithfulness, we should be asking the question, who am I following and who is following me? Who am I following and who is following me? The life of, of discipleship and devotion to Christ is to be lived in the context of community. Now, if you've been following along in 1 Corinthians, you're like, wait a minute, this, there's an inconsistency here. Didn't Paul say, that wasn't he rebuking the whole I follow Paul, I follow Apollos thing? And, and he was, but what he was rebuking was the self-serving motive. That when we pursue leaders for the sake of kind of feeling better about ourselves, like I side with this guy over this guy, that's what Paul is rebuking. Instead, he's trying to reframe, no, you need to follow leaders as they follow Christ. And so when you ask the question, who are the people in my life that I'm following after? We should also ask the question, who are they following? Because that's what Paul gets at. He says this later on in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Who are the people in your life that you're following? And are they people who are seeking to follow Christ in such a way that their desire is to make much of God or is their desire to make much of themselves? And this kind of shows us maybe one of the strangest things about faithfulness to God is that our joy comes not in making much of ourselves but in making much of Him, which seems so backwards to us. But the people we're following, all of this is just going to turn into arrogance and self-promotion if we aren't intentional in following people who are following Jesus themselves. But the flip side of that is that who is following you? Who is following you? And maybe the, the, the follow-up question to that is, and what are they learning by following you? What are the things they're catching and, and picking up as they watch your life? I don't care if, if you're young or old or if, if you think you have influence or not, everybody has somebody who is following them and learning from them. They pick these things up. To, to, to illustrate it, I took my oldest daughter, Lula, to, to play disc golf last summer. You know, if you've ever played it, it's like throw Frisbees into a basket. It's like golf with Frisbees. And um, we were playing, and my daughter, was, she'd pick a Frisbee up, and she'd throw it and just go, ugh. And she'd pick up another one, throw it, and just go, ugh. And I was like, what is she doing? I didn't know what was going on. And halfway through, I realized, that's how I play disc golf. I throw it, and I just go, ugh, and I'm just disappointed. And she's like, oh, this is how you play this game. Okay, and, ugh. And like, that's, okay, it's kind of boring, but I've mastered it. And I realized, like, oh, she's picking this up from me. She's watching me. It was like, this is how you play this dumb sport. I don't get it. But the same, the, the, the point of that is to show that we all have people that are watching us. 
And the question we should ask ourselves is, is my life, is my life showing enough of Jesus and his kingdom in the way I'm living so that others can see that, that life is more than just living for ourselves. Life is more than living for the approval of others. What are people learning from my life? So as we bring this all to a close, ask that question of yourself. Who am I following and who are they following? But also ask, who is following me and what are they learning from me? So as we've seen, this, this faithfulness to God is very strange. It's backwards in the way in which we think, in, way in, which, in which we value life. But the more we come to know who Jesus is, the more we encounter him and seek him and understand his life, his death, his resurrection, the strangeness of this faithfulness actually becomes very clear. It starts to make a great deal of sense. I mean, why wouldn't we identify with Jesus as a suffering servant? He came and entered this world not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Why wouldn't we, if we were following Jesus, identify with him as a servant? Why wouldn't we identify with Jesus, the one who came not making much of himself, but came to do the will of the Father and pointed to him, that he has come to show the world the goodness of his Father? That he does not take credit for who he is, but he points everything back to the gracious Father who provides for all of his children. Why wouldn't we also realize that our talents are all gifts from God? And why wouldn't we also recognize that it is our weaknesses that actually make us strong? Because in the gospel we see that Jesus, through his weakness, demonstrated his strength. That by becoming a humble servant, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that through that weakness, through that brokenness, he displays a power and strength that, he, that no one else has ever seen or observed. And so in fact, the more we understand who Jesus is, this strange faithfulness starts to make a lot more sense. And in fact, begins to make a lot of sense of the strangeness of our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we ask that you would continue to show us more of, of the way in which you have made life to, to function and, to, and, and the way in which life is meant to, to be enjoyed, and that is through embracing a life of faithfulness to you, seeing that we are servants living before our audience of one, where we are freed from attaching our failures and our accomplishments to our identity. And we are able to, to see that who we are is all based on how you view us. Lord, give us the grace to, to recognize that all we are and all we have is the result of your grace towards us. And may we also embrace our weaknesses that you might display your strength and power in us and through us for our good and for your glory. And may we see the person of Jesus Christ who displays all of these beautifully in his life, death, and resurrection. And may we rejoice in this good news and may we respond to it in faithfulness. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.